Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. We're back to talk more about E.T. Yes, we are. I'm having so much more fun with this episode than I realized I would. Really? I I think it goes back to what we said last time. I had not seen this movie in decades. decades, Mm -hmm. And I did not realize how much I enjoyed it. So I know that... You had some issues I with did. the tiny teeth and spindly, spindly fingers and fingers. Also, Stephen, hello, Stephen, who likes to shoot things through the leaves in the dark, opening to ET, opening to Jurassic Park. I was like, "What is it, Stephen? What is it?" It's called suspense. It's called suspense. <laughs> it's a called it. a good hook. It did, and then in the little. Yeah. I even wrote in my notes, "Spindly fingers!" with exclamation. That points. is so funny. <laughs> it's a weird thing. Well, I thought I would ask you before we jump into talking. In this episode, more about the making of E.T. himself and the filming process, some more of our reactions, that type of thing. I thought I would start by asking you to share a little bit of the filmmaker perspective. What, What are a few of the things that struck you as you were watching the movie from the filmmaker angle. From the filmmaker angle, I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if this was on purpose, but with Steven, everything's on purpose. So mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting in the opening scene how he had the red, E.T.'s red chest was the same color as the red flashlights. Mm. So it almost looked like a bunch of hearts at first if you're looking at the light, and maybe that's right. why E.T. kind of, he got left behind because he wandered off. I thought it was interesting to show, even with this alien puppet, I mean, I know he's an alien puppet, but to describe all of this emotion behind it where he goes and he looks at the lights of the city mm-hmm. to just show us he just wants to see beauty right and he got left behind there i thought it was i talked about this in the last episode i thought it was really smart to show things from the kid point of view because there is no male figure in the kids lives so we don't see any male faces up until peter coyote about an hour and 15 into it i think mm-hmm. i wrote it down but somewhere in there and i just love <sighs> I love all the little moments that make things seem more real Mm -hmm. and more authentic. Agree. That's something I I wrote down too. Just loved it. I think we talked about this back when we were doing Jaws. He is just brilliant at highlighting the normal everyday things, Mm -hmm. the normal everyday interactions. Mike and his friends are so believable. Mm -hmm. The siblings and the way they talk to each other, the way they hang out, you just believe them. You really do. It's a gift. He has a definite gift. He definitely does. One other 
thought I had had to do with colors. Mm-hmm. Kind of piggybacks on what you said about starting with the leafy environment. Yes. Mm-hmm. I noticed that it started with such beautiful colors. It was so warm and we had leafy green mm-hmm. and we had, I don't know, it just felt like this very homey, magical, pretty place. But I think I was contrasting it. I'm coming out of Star Wars where mm-hmm. things are so kind Spacey, of... Spacey, gray. Yes. Very isolated looking, mm-hmm. very brown, mm-hmm. very... Color is really important. Mm-hmm. It really is. And so this just felt warm and beautiful until all of a sudden later in the movie when the government comes into it's play... And yes. sterile. Yes, that is exactly the word I wrote down. We had such sterility. So we go from all of the very, very humane, relatable, close interactions of these this family and these these friends to all of a sudden everything is isolated, mm-hmm. separated, sterile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just he did such a good job of being intentional about all the elements that create an emotion or a feeling within the audience. One other thought. One of their noticing the Star Wars. Nods. I read that too. You, I was you? just looking at that. It has Star Wars toys and ET and had a little smiley face. And then he used a little shark to feed the fish. Yes. And then we had Yoda later, of course. And yes. there was a little strain of the Star Wars music. And that's what happens when you have a best friend that's George Lucas. He's like, sure, you can use my stuff in your movie. That's fine. He shared that it was a surprise. He was watching it George with didn't know. George Lucas, and that when Yoda came out, George <gasps> gave him a nudge and like smiled at him. Okay, that's a real risk. Because yeah, you're best friends, but you're you're promoting. Still? I think I think it was seen as promoting his okay. friend's work. I think yeah. it was Katie, actually you and I put Yoda in the thing. You know we're gonna get oh, sued. Oh, we're gonna get sued. <laughs> we're gonna get sued so fast. George Lucas is not sending us a note. No, he's not. No. He's not gonna wink and nod gonna, at no. us. <laughs> yeah, but. I think it I think it was definitely in from Steven Spielberg's mind a compliment to his friend. Yeah, it was. It was a little honor or something. Well, last time when we met, we talked a lot about the inspiration for the story, of course, and the importance of the script that Melissa Matheson created. But mm-hmm. we lived a lot in the fact that this was a story about children and focusing on the perspective of a child. And just to revisit that idea for just a minute, I found this quote that I love because it directly makes the connection between that vision from Steven Spielberg and how it played out with his filmmaking. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to read this little excerpt from a BBC Culture article. Spielberg, being in his mid-30s at the time of the film, was still relatively close to his subjects in age, which enables him to invest psychologically. That shows in the film's keen emotional impact as well as in Spielberg's fresh cinematics, particularly the way his camera works at roughly the children's head height, investing physically in a child's universe, and his no-nonsense, puckish attitude toward children's banter, games, and worldview. Mostly the film scores because, as well as daring to literally place itself at its protagonist's height, it doesn't talk down to the child characters. These are children who rebel, who respond to their environment, who have agency in their own world, and whose pain is accorded as much importance as they give it themselves. Molly Haskell, author of Spielberg, A Life in Films, concurs, saying, I think E.T. has been hugely influential in prioritizing, even consecrating, the child's point of view over that of the grown-ups, whether authorities in uniform or distracted mothers. In E.T., Elliot and his siblings are the ones who carve out their own world, nursing the wounded alien, dressing it up, and returning it to its people by defying lawmakers. 
I loved that because I felt like it, it affirmed the things that I think we've already said, but it brought out a new idea for mm-hmm. me, which is the fact that the children are the ones with the agency. They're running the story. They are running. They are the ones who take care of things. Mm-hmm. They are the heroes. They have the plan. They save the day. I loved the mother. I mean, I really liked her, but she was not a strong character. She you wasn't. Could... She was very distracted. Mm-hmm. I thought, seriously, this alien is in your kitchen and you do not see it, you know, you you have, pay attention pay some kind of attention right and then she left her child yes. alone yes. I I had a hard time with that. She's six. She's like, here, stay here. I'll be right back. What? I know. I could not. Mm-mm. So so I think the insights from this author who wrote the BBC Culture article. It was really insightful. I thought it was it was mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah. One of the notes I wrote in here midway through, I said, why don't they ever trust moms? You know, they they always say, don't tell mom. Whatever you do, don't tell mom. And then as the film goes on, I was like, oh, well, that, that's why they didn't trust mom. Because <laughs> as soon as they tell mom, she's like, ah, get out of here. And she starts screaming. I'm like, oh, well, see, this is why they didn't tell you. But they did a good job of still making her likable. Yes, they did. Yeah. And, and, and you could see she was that she was struggling. Stuff. Yeah, you she's could, dealing with her own stuff. You could stuff. see she was struggling. Yeah. Now, we've said a lot about that, but what we have haven't yet said much about is E.T. E.T. himself. Yes. That's right. So there was an NPR article that came out just in December of 2022, so very recently, that talked about an original model of E.T. being sold at auction for $2.56 million. Oh. Here's what happened. So Julian's Auctions was holding this auction that they called Icons and Idols of Hollywood. It was held in partnership with Turner Classic Movies, and their draw was that they were presenting more than 1,300 Hollywood artifacts. That'd be cool. Right? But the biggest draw, or one of the biggest draws, was that they were also auctioning off this original mechatronic model of E.T. from the classic 1982 E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I wonder why they would do that and not put in a Smithsonian. Was there multiple copies, I'm guessing? Well, not the way this read. Wow. This said the mechatronic model is considered an engineering masterpiece featuring 85 points of movement and earning the Italian special effects artist Carlo Rimbaldi his third Academy Award in visual effects in 1983. The blurb on the auction website read, quote, One of the rarest and most remarkable pieces of Hollywood memorabilia ever to come to auction. Julian's is honored to present one of the actual last surviving authentic animatronic ETs used during the making of the beloved and cherished blockbuster film E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which captured the hearts of audiences across the world. It did say one of, it did but say one still, of. Yeah. I cannot believe that. It sounds that. very rare. Yeah. yeah. They went on to discuss it a little bit more on this website. They said that the small alien's extendable neck was inspired by one of Rimbaldi's own paintings of women from his hometown in Italy, which he portrayed with long necks. Again, this is from that auction site. And it went on to share that Rimbaldi believed the neck could act as an empathic way for E.T. to interact with humans. So the neck was a purposeful thing. All this leads us, that was a little teaser, to Uh lead us into talking about the making of E.T. The making of the actual robotic puppet? Yes. Now, when it came to creating the alien, they did not know what they wanted it to look like. Steven had worked with Carlo Rimbaldi before. He is the special effects artist we just talked about. And they had worked together on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Steven loved his work, so he asked him to work on this project too, and he agreed. 
Stephen and his team knew that they did not want it to be a monster. That was something that was a a parameter that they put out there. But he really didn't know what he wanted it to be. He said, quote, I remember saying to Carlo, here's some pictures of Albert Einstein, Ernest Hemingway, and Carl Sandburg. I love their eyes. Can we make E.T.'s eyes as frivolous and also wizened and as sad as those three icons? That's not asking for much. Right? (laughs) So what happened was, and they showed this in the making of E.T., they started, people were, like these people on the team, started looking at lots of pictures. They started doing lots of drawings. And they would just, they were all over the wall. And Stephen would just start going, I like that. I don't like the, you know, the, and I'm sure it wasn't just Stephen. I'm sure his team was working on this as well. But they just started to kind of flesh out the outward appearance of E.T. by using all these pictures and drawings. I'm just going to say, as a person who never wants to hurt anyone's feelings, can you imagine being Stephen and and being someone that works for Stephen and working really, really hard on something and putting it up there and then going, I don't like that. (laughs) Just like, oh my gosh. If it was me, I'd be like, I really love what you did here. (laughs) And I would just apologize all over the place. Mm -hmm. But it's just not quite fitting the vision of what I'm so sorry. It's my fault. It's it's me. It's not you. It's me. Right. But he's just like, nope, nope. Yeah. Yes. God, I can't imagine. Well, I mean, how do you hit a target when that's moving? You have, yes. I mean, to have absolutely no idea other than, well, let's start with some, you know, pictures of these three iconic <laughs> guys and give you know, me some let's sad capture eyes. their eyes. <laughs> well, bless their hearts, they somehow figured it out. <laughs> And there is a book that came out, I think it's been in the last two years. Obviously, I've not read it, but it probably is amazing. It's called E.T. the Extraterrestrial, The Ultimate Visual History. And some sources talked about this book, of course, and they said that it shares how technicians and special effects artists built the physical version of E.T. in just six months, Mm. which they said was an absolutely massive undertaking on such a short timeline. Yes, it would be. And they said, they gave him a lot of credit for doing a good job because this one fella who wrote for the Washington Post commented that viewers may forget E.T. is, quote, a suit augmented with animatronics. Mm. He also goes on to say that he thinks that the E.T. creation of this alien was part of the reason behind its remarkable success because, quote, he remains one of the most soulful, expressive special effects ever conceived. E.T. has personality and character and emotion, Mm -hmm. and he moves like a living thing. He seems genuinely alive. He does, yeah. CNN chimes in and says, Considered an engineering masterpiece, this one-of-a-kind animatronic figure featuring 85 points of articulation predates the advent of CGI, computer graphic imagery, effects in filmmaking, and obviously it was designed, developed, and engineered in 1981, which makes it even more important. Impressive. Yeah. And the, Stephen and, and George both, I think, like to use practical instead of CGI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, it wasn't around then. They mm-hmm. didn't have any choice. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're saying even now they try to uh, kind of uh, use well, some of the old know. strategies. I think so. I, I mean, even <clears throat> back then when CGI was coming to, I'm going back to our Jurassic Park episode where it was available, but he wanted to use the life-size puppets instead. Mm-hmm. Well, it was brought to life by a whole team of animators using electronic and mechanical elements. And they talked about the fact that it was impressive that its movements included facial expressions, neck movements. It had the glowing finger. Yeah. Steven Spielberg himself at one point described it as the eighth wonder of the movie world. Ah. So he was very happy with it. They even got a woman named Beverly Hoffman from an eye institute to create glass eyes for E.T., mm. 
And Stephen was the one who decided that when the heart light came on, he wanted the organs inside E.T. to be visible. To be shown. So that was, yes. Now, they did have some living people who helped bring E.T. to life as well. They did not always have someone who was inside the E.T. suit, but sometimes they did have to put somebody there, even though it was also being controlled by a team of mechanical operators. Okay. But if E.T. was required to walk or move about, that's when they needed somebody. Okay. They had two performers who have both passed away, Tamara Detro and Pat Billen, who both had dwarfism, who helped mm-hmm. them to do this. Mm-hmm. But one of the other humans who helped them was a young boy named Matthew Demerit. So he was one of the three performers who gave E.T. movement. Oh, so they had a young boy. Interesting. He was born without legs and he was contacted and asked if he wanted to do a screen test. And when he did, he was hired. He gave an interview to Mirror back in 2002, which was reported and talked about in the Entertainment Tonight article that I found. And here's what Matt said. Any scene where they wanted E.T. to fall over, they would use me. The suit was made of rubber and they sprayed it with something to make it look sticky. There were slits in the chest for me to look out of and the head sat on top of my head. He was the one who did the famous scene where E.T. drinks beer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He said that it was really hot and Steven Spielberg came up to him and asked if he was all right. Yeah. And then he wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to get hurt, you know, Uh so he was, he was, you know, checking on Matt, making sure he was okay. And then after he figured all that out, he said to him, is there any way you could just walk straight into that cabinet there and just kind of fall on your butt and get back up, turn around and for the grand finale, fall smack on your face. (laughs) Is that okay? Can you do that? <laughs> yes. And he did. <laughs> okay. And he did. Drew well, he was a kid. They recover really well. Yes. And Drew Barrymore talked about how much fun she had hanging out with him on the set. So they were they were good friends too. Ben Burt was the sound design person who created E.T.'s voice. He used the human voice of a woman named Pat Welsh. And then he had to do some electronic adjustment to the pitch of her voice. Uh-huh. And then he went on to explain that he had to, to meld that with other things. He said in this BBC article, I created the voice for E.T. out of many different things, about 18 different people and animals and sound effects. Wow. There are raccoons in there. There are sea otters. There are some horses. There's a burp from my old cinema professor from USC. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Yes, I love it. They also used a mime to help make a few of E.T.'s arm movements look more realistic. Steven said that when he saw the mechanical arms, they were great, but they were very jerky sometimes. Yeah, yeah. The fingers would move, but almost a little too thoughtfully sometimes. So he felt that E.T. needed to have almost balletic arms, almost like the mm. hands of a mime. They put it out there and they ended up hiring a mime who they would then make up, you know, the, the mime's hand so that the artist could be artistic when picking things up or touching certain things or reaching out. So that's how they sometimes Interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, where do I go to when he put things when he puts things out there and they like respond? Where do I go to sign up for wherever <laughs> he puts things out there? And then this guy's like, "I'll do it." <laughs> I would like to be on that mailing list, please. <laughs> and how crazy! Um, we're looking for a mime yeah, exactly. for our alien movie. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. Sure. Of course, you probably know this. ILM worked on this. Did you know that? No, I didn't know it, but I would expect it. Yes. Industrial Light and Magic 
Of course, we know them through George Lucas. His bestie. That's right. According to, I looked direct, I went straight to the source. I went to the ILM website uh-huh. and they said that they created the now iconic image of E.T. and Elliot flying over the face mm. of a full moon using the studio's go motion technology combined with exquisitely crafted miniatures and puppet characters shot on a blue screen and then seamlessly inserted into live action plates. It's beautiful. And that's his logo. Steven's logo is Amblin, which was his first, mm-hmm. I think his first film. But then his logo is Elliot and E.T. flying over that moon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So talk about iconic. Yes. Well, they worked on that special effects for a very long time, and I'm sure they did other things as well. That was the example I pulled out. But the ILM effects team was honored with an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for their efforts in 1982. As they should be. Yeah. So the book that I've already referenced, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, The Ultimate Visual History, gave a little bit more detail about that same scene. And what they said was that the team from ILM had to create a model forest in a miniature puppet figure riding a bicycle and then had to spend, they said months, other sources did not say it was months, but they had to go out into the dark and find the perfect setting mm-hmm. to have the perfect telephoto shot of the full moon rising above oh, the horizon yeah, because yeah. that part of it was real. Okay. So this one fella who and worked- anyone who's taken to try to take a picture of the moon knows it is so hard to get a picture of the moon. It just looks like a little blurry, mm-hmm. you know. Well, he talked about this. Okay, here's, yes, you do such a good job with your segues. <laughs> this fellow named Michael Pangrazio, who worked as a mat supervisor on the film, said in that book, quote, when looking at the moon in real life, it's the size of your pinky fingernail when your arm is stretched out all the way. It's pretty small, but ours is exaggerated. We wanted to show all the craters and detail. If we had created it with paint or cotton or backlighting, it would have been too simplistic. We had to go for the real thing. And in the end, it paid off. Yeah, I did. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. The spaceship. Remember E.T., of course. He got left behind. He does. He gets left behind. And then like he, Kevin and then he also flies away. So we <laughs> yes. needed a good spaceship. Yes. So Ralph McQuarrie is the fella responsible for that. He said that Stephen asked to meet with him one day at ILM. Very briefly said, here's kind of what I'm looking for for the spaceship. Said it was really very vague to the point of Stephen even saying, you know, it could even be Dr. Seussish if you want. Mm. And said, you know, come up with Go something. Do it. Go yeah. do it. And Ralph said this was very overwhelming because it was, again, it was like, it could be anything. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. But he got lucky, I think, in some ways because he hit exactly what Stephen loved. He came back with a proposal and Stephen was it like, was a different, yep, let's do that. It was an interesting, it was tall instead yeah. of thin and and wide. I thought that was, inter- it was more Seuss looking, I thought. Mm-hmm. Kind of a lip, almost eggish in yeah, some ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. The score. Oh, John Williams. I know. My first note, John Williams music. That's the guy you got to get. And it's amazing. It's so beautiful. Has the man had any fails? I don't think so. Well, of course he used the master John Williams on the podcast episode. I mentioned it when we did Harrison Ford. Steven Spielberg was interviewed on Smartless and he did reference his collaboration with John Williams, who he calls Johnny. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was just a lovely little story. I'm taking a a little rabbit trail here. But he shared that John Williams made a point to do the score for his autobiographical movie, The Fablemans. I want to see that. Yeah, it came out, what, a year or two ago? Yes, yes. And that was Stephen's last movie as director. Wait, like ever? That's what he's saying. (gasps) Mm -hmm. What? That's what he's saying. And John Williams also agreed to do 
the last Indiana Jones movie oh. for him. He's not directing, but he is executive producing, producing mm-hmm. I think. So kind of, I think, a, a little favor to him that he finished these out oh. for Stephen. Oh, it feels like the end of an era. Yes. Oh. Well, and okay, this is going to get your heart. He said, remember, Fableman's is autobiographical, yes. of course. So incredibly personal yes. to Stephen. And so Stephen shared that as a special gift to him and his parents, John composed this one song in particular for the movie The Fablemans that literally brought him to tears. Mm-hmm. He said it was it was comparable. The only other time that he was brought to tears in the same way was when he first heard the main theme for Schindler's List that, oh. that John Williams had created for him. So he said it absolutely just touched him. And then he goes on to say that out of his entire career, his work with John Williams has been his greatest collaboration. Oh, yes. And he and he says, I've had many great yes. collaborative experiences yes. and relationships, but that one Music takes the Music absolutely makes it. Well, and just their respect yes. and the, the way they work together. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Before we go on, should we take a quick little break? Sure. I need to recover from this whole Stephen retiring thing. If you love Scandal Water and would like to help us keep the tea brewing, simply go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod, where you can become a monthly supporter or give a one-time gift. Cheers! And we are back. So we, we've talked about the development, the creation of E.T. and mm-hmm. the score, but just to say just a tiny bit more about the filmmaking process, Stephen, as the director, we've already said that the kids, the, the child actors said that he could get the best out of them. Henry Thomas said that Stephen was always in his ear, mm-hmm. like he was always there giving suggestions mm-hmm. and feedback. And I saw it. I heard it. He was so affirming. Like I thought Steven Spielberg would be intimidating, mm-hmm. but watching him... The way he would talk to those kids, the way he would give them feedback, the way he would give suggestions, mm-hmm. I was like, I would want to work for this man. He was so loving to yes. them. And Henry Thomas joked that when he was watching the film for the first time at the premiere, that he kind of imagined that he had Stephen in his ear still. Like it was Aww. such a part of his experience. But he said another comment he made, Henry, was that he was ready for the goodbye scene because Stephen had already worked through it with him. Aww. Like this man was in it with these children yes. and he, he dressed up them. for Halloween Aww. with them. Like he celebrated well, he, occasions we said earlier with he, them. He felt like their father or he felt like a father figure to them. Absolutely. He acted that way. They treated him that way. It was a beautiful thing. Something that came out, something else that came out in the Drew Barrymore reunion show was in how the whole cast and crew interacted like a family. It was such a loving environment for them. They all talked about how lovely Melissa Matheson was. Oh, good. Was she on set? It sounded like she was there a lot. Okay. Yeah. In nice. fact, sometimes she would, when new uh, a new part of the script was released to the kids, she'd be the one that would read through it with them and oh, kind of review with them. That's lovely. Re- basically a pre-rehearsal, mm-hmm. you know. They said she had such a warm personality. She was so approachable. She was wonderful. Dee Wallace talked about the very first day she met Drew. Drew was sitting on her lap within Mm. the first few minutes. These people all connected and lasting impact. I I know I've already shared one quote from Drew Barrymore, but I'm going to read just one more. Steven Spielberg, he cast me as Gertie when I was just five years old and that changed my life. He gave me a purpose and a clear understanding of love and respect. He gave me a family that changed my perception on family forever. Mm. The cast Robert and Henry and Dee, I truly became a family with them. Mm. We were very protective, 
very nurturing. Stephen was our patriarch for sure. I considered him like a father. I didn't have one growing up, and he still feels like that to me to this day. And I always carry the message of this film. I think it is so much a part of who I am and why I am this way, because this movie is about how we should always fight for the things we love, and just because something or someone is different, unfamiliar, we shouldn't be afraid to protect that. We shouldn't turn our backs on that. We should embrace our differences and learn from each other. Wow. She's so insightful. Yeah, I thought that was really good. One last little cute story here. (laughs) Drew turned to Henry and Robert on the set and she said, so I understand I had boyfriends all the time. Yeah. And they start laughing and they they go on to say, yup, you would have a boyfriend, but it would be for just one day. And Robert McNaughton says, one day it was Tommy, one the next day it would be Henry, the next day it would be me or Casey or Sean. <laughs> and then Henry Thomas jumps in. It was so cute. He goes, the funny thing was, though, we all kind of took it seriously. <laughs> he said, you know, we were like, oh... Drew's eating lunch with Tommy today. <laughs> Guess I'm out. <laughs> She's so precious. I would be like, yes, I, I would want that too. I know. I thought I just love that. <laughs> oh, and just fun little side note. Drew ended up introducing Robert McNaughton later, of course, to the woman that he eventually married. Oh, yeah. yeah. His sister introduced him. That's right. That's cute. So response to the film. We haven't talked about this yet. E.T. was released in theaters in June of 1982. Dee Wallace shared that she was afraid she had ruined her career with this film. Why? She said that the first time she saw it was at Universal with all the producers and executives. Oh, and never... she, oh she said it was terrible. She was yeah. sitting in the back and she said nobody reacted. Yeah. She went home to her husband and said, I think my career's over. And she said that her husband took her hand and said, come on, we're going to go see it with an audience. Yes. And she said that when she sat in that theater and people... People were screaming and crying and standing up and yelling. And she said her husband leaned over, took her hand and said, what do you think now, sweetheart? What a good husband. Yeah. What a good guy. So in 1982, it came in number one for the year I heard the on box office. I heard that it was one of the only films that it, it ran for a solid year. Like that's unheard of. Oh, I didn't even notice that. IMDb trivia said wow. it ran for a year in the cinema. That is crazy. Yes. Wow. No, I didn't even see that. That's yeah. awesome. I did see that it quickly became the highest grossing film of all time and maintained that title for over a decade until, until Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. He beat his own record. Can you imagine? No, oh I goodness. can't. Obviously I can't. <laughs> But they also opened on the same day, June 11th. Mm. E.T. I think if I read the trivia right, June 11th, E.T. opened, June 11th, Jurassic Park opened. We got some, we got some superstitious people here. We they're, do. They're like, oh, I'm going to open oh, something oh, on June yeah. 11th. Well, it was produced on a budget of a little over $10 million, but the film racked up nearly $360 million from Ooh. its original release in the U.S. To this day, it has now earned almost... 800 million worldwide. Wow. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for nine Oscars at the 1983 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director for Steven Spielberg, but it won four of those nine, mm-hmm. which were Best Original Score, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. Mm. It was named one of cinema's greatest films in Time's All Time 100 list. It has inspired a hit ride at Universal Studios. Yep. It got a shout out in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. They they said or at least oh yeah the, he's yeah george repaid the favor of yoda he put him in the little um the general assembly or whatever it was yeah he's in that love et it. is well at the end of the drew barrymore reunion episode the idea of a sequel came up mm-hmm. and drew turned to the cast you know her family members there and she said what do you all think 
And Henry Thomas spoke first and he said, you know what? We've now lost Melissa Matheson mm -hmm. and she was the heart. Basically, mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but mm -hmm. he, he said, basically, she was the heart of the original script. I don't know that we'd want to do it without her. Yeah. And Dee Wallace chimes in and says, it was a classic. Yeah. Leave it alone. Yeah. And then Drew chimed in and, you know, apparently she and Steven really have remained close. It sounds like she hangs out with him. They talk, you know. But she said that she once heard Stephen say he would never make a sequel. And that is something that I came across in several sources. I saw where he himself has been quoted as saying... I'm not going to do he's it. He's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said was he felt like a sequel robs the original work of its powers. Mm -hmm. Because sequels are generally not as good, but then the sequel ends up being what's remembered. Right, right. Mm -hmm. This was actually a very good sequel. The Ralphie, the Christmas Story Christmas. I thought it was a good sequel. Yes. I thought it completed that story. Yes. I don't think you could do that with this because mm -hmm. then E.T. has to come back. And then what do you say? They're not children anymore. What story could you tell? You know, yeah. you'd just be doing a cash grab almost. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because were you the person who sent it to me or did I run across it on my own? But there was an Xfinity commercial. We found it independently because I found it as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, Henry Thomas said that over the years, he has been approached countless times about doing commercials or other projects somehow related to E.T. And he said, really, it never even came down to whether he would say it. It always came down to Stephen's approval, whether sure. something's going to be allowed or yeah. not. And Stephen approved this Xfinity commercial. It's about four minutes long. It mm -hmm. was made in 2015 for NBC's 93rd Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade called a holiday reunion. Steven served as the consultant on the film. Henry Thomas did his role yes, as did. Elliot, but of course now it's after 30 years and he's grown up. He's an adult. The premise is he's now got his own family and E.T. returns to Earth to celebrate the holiday season with them. John Williams authorized their being able to use his music for the nice. film and this was used as a film for as a Christmas commercial in 2019 for Sky. Henry himself has said that he was happy with it and yeah. that he thinks it might be the closest yeah. that they would ever get to a sequel. I think it I think it's right because it's it's just brief enough and be, how do you make 90 minutes out of what they did there? You don't want any conflict. You want it to be just this sweet little reunion, which is what it is. And I thought it was clever that they cast Elliot's son to look so much like mm -hmm. Elliot cuz ET mistakes him for Elliot. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there were so many little mm -hmm. nods and touching things about it that I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was very sweet. I thought it was very well done. In yeah. fact, we definitely need to put that in our we show will. notes. And all the, the comments on the YouTube are like, I'm sobbing. This is so much nostalgia. You know, people just loved it. Armchair Psychologist. For our armchair, as we bring this to a close, I thought I would just open the floor. Okay. We, we've both rewatched yes. the, the movie. Do you have anything else you would like to share? Um, well, I wrote down a few of my favorite quotes. Oh, yes. As I, I was hear going this. through it. Okay. And there's only a few. There's really a few. It's, <laughs> it comes from the end where they're, it's just, I love the way the siblings talk to each other because it felt so real. Mm -hmm. So his brother is asking where something is and Elliot says, I don't know streets. Mom always drives me so i thought that was really cute and the brother says i've never driven forward before yes. um, and then the uh the final one oh no i love drew barrymore saying um i don't like his feet and they said that was an ad lib but it just seems so cute she's just like i don't like his feet and they're like get over it or whatever <laughs> but the final one that i just 
just the way that Henry Thomas delivers this. And these are all comical lines. I mean, the sweet lines are, of course, mm-hmm. very sweet. But his friend says something, Greg, Greg, the one that always wore the headset. He says, can he just beam up? And then <laughs> Elliot looks at him dead serious and goes, this is reality, Greg. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to incorporate that into my everyday dialogue. If someone says something, I'm going to go, this is reality, Greg. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> they were just so adult. They were such little adults. Oh. Those are good quotes. Yes. I like it. Hey, this is such a a turn, but this is kind of interesting, and I I just realized I hadn't shared it. Did you know that Harrison Ford actually filmed a scene for this movie that did not make it? He was the teacher. The principal. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was going to play the teacher, and he couldn't do that. But yes, I do remember reading that in the IMDb that he had a part in it. He was supposed to, I think basically reprimand Elliot after he let all the frogs go. That was another thing. The frog scene. I I wrote in my notes. I was like, killing the frogs. No, 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 no. I know. Yeah, I was so happy he let them go. I was was having trouble when they were going to chloroform them. Oh, I was getting a little disturbed myself. I was very upset. Mm -hmm. I would have been just like him. Like, be free. I don't care. Get out of here. Yeah, that was very upsetting. And what a brilliant idea to have Elliot experience what E.T. was Mm -hmm. going through, which again, I think this was a touch from Melissa Matheson mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. but it was wonderful acting for a 10-year-old yes. boy to do that whole scene yes. and to to be playing as though he'd, he'd been drinking yep. and then he lets those frogs, frogs go and has to kiss the girl, which... Steven Spielberg said Henry Thomas absolutely hated. He was probably terrified. He hated having to kiss her. I bet he wouldn't hate it now, but being 10 years <laughs> At old. At the time. And I, part of what makes me think I'd never seen this film before is the questions I was asking myself as I took notes. I said, did E.T. lure him to sleep? Why did Elliot get scared at the fridge? Why did Gertie call her mother Mary? Why does Elliot's chest hurt? Why don't they ever trust the mom? <laughs> I was just like <laughs> asking myself all these questions until I figured out that they were empathetically connected. I was like, mm-hmm. what is happening? Why is he acting this way? Oh, the burp. Finally at the burp i have on here elliot burps they are definitely connected (laughs) so that's when i put it together but how nice that they let us figure that out yes you know they let they let it go they trusted their audience Mm -hmm. to get there without Mm -hmm. smacking us over the head with it it wasn't on the nose yes Well, that was lovely. That was a lovely I, I enjoyed walk our, down nostalgic Yes, lane. I enjoyed our visit I with, with E.T. and Despite his spindly fingers and tiny teeth. <laughs> which is so funny because so much of what I read and, and I shared in this episode was everyone saying how lovable and relatable and your whole reaction to him is E. <laughs> <laughs> like, He's E.T. <laughs> you did not feel it at all. I didn't, but I respect the people that did. And I respect the story and I thought it was a lovely story when they were saying goodbye to E.T., I did feel a little well up, like, mm, I'm sad for them, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. it's, it's a beautiful story. Yes. And I loved that our lonely boy who was struggling with the loss of his dad yeah. and his family basically e. being torn apart and his older brother not letting him play with his friends. Yes. They really they really did kind of set him as, apart. He yeah. was, was kind of isolated. Yeah. And by the end of that movie, they he were was, siblings. They were a family. Mm, they again. were a family. They were united, and he was empowered. Do you get the feeling that Peter Coyote was going to be the new dad? I wondered. I did. I felt like hmm, this is going to be your new dad. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. They'd been through a traumatic experience mm-hmm. together. They were all going to bond together. Yeah. And <laughs> one, if... one thing Brian said when he said, do you want to be alone with him? And they leave him alone with E.T. Brian's like, they would never allow that. <laughs> They're never going to let this <laughs> no. kid be alone with E.T. No. They're like going to haul him out of there. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so the most true. unrealistic part. The government people leave you alone with the alien. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Good point. All right. Well, as we bring this to a close. Yes. 
How about a big cheers to Steven Spielberg? Yes. And Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas. All the actors. Dee Wallace, Robert McNaughton, Drew Barrymore. That sold this film. Yes. Such a beautiful job. Mm -hmm. Such a beautiful job. Cheers to you guys. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.